on this last Friday of the season of Advent, we're going to conclude our reflections on mercy, which happens to be the theme of the declaration by the Holy Father of the Year of Mercy. Uh, last week, we, uh, we looked at the New Testament primarily to see the theme and concept of mercy as preached and taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we relied primarily on the Gospel of uh, St. Luke, chapter 6, verse 36, and St. Matthew, chapter 6, verse 48. Luke was telling us to be merciful as the Father is merciful. Matthew was putting it slightly differently. Matthew says, be perfect as your Father is perfect. Uh, this evening, I would like us to look into the concept of mercy as something that is a part of the triune God. It wasn't something invented or initiated by our Lord Jesus Christ. It was something he was reinforcing. God is both love and mercy and holy. And he's been that way from the beginning. So this evening, uh, of course, if you look at the 73 books of the Bible, if you're a Catholic, and if you're a Protestant, it will be 66 books. In every one of those books, there is a concept of mercy running through. That's the way it was in the beginning. When Adam and Eve fell, God's mercy kicked in. When he called Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice and hid. And he asked him, why were you hiding? He said, because I'm naked. Well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit I had, asked, I had forbidden you? At that point, God could have said, get out of my face. I don't want to see you again. He didn't do that. His mercy kicked in. But his justice is also there and demands that a penalty be paid for the transgression. So he kicked them out, but still cared for them, cared, cares for us, and promised what we are expecting now in the season of Advent. He imposed the punishment, just like a judge in a court. He imposed the punishment, but then what did he do? 
he went back into his chamber, took off his robe, and satisfied the prison term by sending his son. Out of mercy, he did all that. So this evening, let's look at primarily the Old Testament. And I'm relying on a few of them, the book of Exodus, Jeremiah, Jonah, Joel, and of course, Ezekiel. Let me begin by reading a short piece here. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. So Moses cut out two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. How? He proclaimed his name, he identified his name for the first time. Lord, Lord, the old uh, books say Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. This is what God identified himself and described himself to Moses as. Let's look at what he is saying here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So mercy is not a new invention, it's a part of him. The first time he identified himself to his creature, he identified himself as merciful. But he also indicated here how he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But you may be troubled by the indication here, but who will by no means clear the guilty? That's um, the old way of saying, even though I'll forgive your sins and clear you and, and forgive your iniquities, I will still exact something from the guilty. The most troubling part of it to you and to me may be where he talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
What does it mean? Let's look at what all that means. And what I have read here is Exodus chapter 34. This is not the first time that Moses went up there. If you recall in chapter 19 of Exodus, Moses had gone up there because God had made a covenant, the first covenant he made with the people of Israel. And that covenant says, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you shall be my own position among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. How did the people respond to this covenant, to this promise? Well, the people became restless and exchanged the glory of the invisible God for the image of their own glory, a golden calf. That was not their first offense. After they had crossed the Red Sea, we began to see rebellion, complaints. The first complaint, no water. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur at Marah. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? That went on for a while. And God told Moses what to do, to strike his staff on the rock. The second complaint was no food. Exodus 16 tells us, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, the whole assembly, with hunger. Of course, you know there's a, a great deal of exaggeration here. They were sitting by the pots of meat and eating bread to the full. That's not what the account says. So let me pause here and ask, what do you and I complain about that keeps us from God's mercy and grace? I'll tell you what I complain about. I'm not tall enough. I speak with an accent. I can't sing. There are a whole lot of things I cannot do. And on and on and on. There are certain things that keep us from accepting what God has given us and doing the best that we can with what has been given to us. Just like Israelites in the wilderness. Complain about this and complain about that. And even when God gave it to them, 
Well, they still complained. They still didn't follow what he was telling them to do. When he sent manna to them, what did he say? Take what you can eat for the day. The same thing we pray in our Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. And Moses emphasizes, don't take more than you need for the day. Well, you know, a number of them did not adhere to that. A number of them took more. And what happened the following day? Well, there were maggots in what they had the leftover. And it stank. They couldn't eat it. So, a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. So that brings us to contemplation and reflection this evening. Whom does God forgive and show his mercy? And whom does he withhold his forgiveness and mercy too. We find the answer from the book of Joel and Jonah. In Joel it says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repentance of evil. Actually, Joel is quoting Exodus 34 here. In other words, he's encouraging the people that if they return to the Lord, he will turn away from the evil he's about to bring unto them. So the answer here, or the assumption would be that people whom the Lord will not forgive are the unrepentant people who will not return to him. The unrepentant heart. You saw here in the penitential rites before the Mass, we invoked, we said, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart. So his mercy is for those who turn away from wrongdoing. That was also the message of John the Baptist. That was the baptism he was giving them. Baptism of repentance. Jonah had the same message with a twist. After he preached to the Ninevites, they repented and God showed mercy. And Jonah complained. Jonah was not happy. And Jonah said this to God. I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All right. How many of us here are Jonah? How many of us get aggrieved when something good happens to others. How many of us wish it had happened to us instead of them? 
That's where Jonah is. Or how many of us say, well, you know, God hasn't punished them enough the way I thought or the way they deserved. So, but God's wisdom is higher above than ours as the heavens are above the earth. And finally, let's talk about visiting the children with the sins of their fathers. That doesn't sound like a merciful God. What is happening here? Why would God do that? Why would God visit the sins of the fathers on the children? And not only just the children, but the children's children up to the third and fourth generation. Well, Ezekiel gives us the answer. Ezekiel says that any child that turns from the sinful ways of his fathers and obeys, God will not punish him for the sins of his fathers. But any child who goes on sinking, uh, sinning like his father will share the father's punishment. And there's yet another issue we want to talk about re regarding mercy. In our pastoral work, your pastoral work, my pastoral work, we often meet two types of people that present a challenge. The first of these two people are those who think that they are so far gone that there's no hope for them. They don't think that God's mercy will be able or will be able to get to them. They, are utterly, they feel they are utterly disqualified for the kingdom because they have done everything in the book. You name it. Anything that is bad and evil they have done. Therefore, they become hopeless. The second group will be those that think forgiveness and, and mercy are a snap. That they are a shoe-in. They pray so many times a day. They give tithes. They go to church. And so they, they feel they are ready for sainthood. Now those two opposite the church teaches are actually wrongfulness in the sight of God. Those who think they are so hopeless that God's mercy cannot save them fall into the sin of despair. And those who feel that they are so good that God's mercy is assured fall into the sin of presumption. And we want to get away from both of them. So what do we do for them? For these two types of people, that when I say two types of people, we are all in, in there. We need to let them know that God is more inclined to mercy than to wrath. 
God has mercy, God has justice, but his mercy overshadows his justice or is greater than his justice. Number two, God chastises us and punishes us only upon great provocation. Uh, the book of Lamentations supports this by saying, but though he caused grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. So you really, really have to provoke him for him to come down on us. His mercy is above his justice. Number three, there is no condition that has no access to God's mercy. It doesn't matter how hideous and it doesn't matter how heinous our sins are. God is always ready to forgive us and show mercy on the one condition that we repent. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Next, all mercy in, in the created world, both the one you show and the one you receive, come from God. And one thing is that God's mercy is not like our own mercy. God's mercy is infinite and eternal. I do something for you today and you come back tomorrow, I do it again and again and again. At one time, I say, oh, wait a minute now, I'm tired of this. That's not God. The more you receive his mercy, the more he's inclined to show mercy. He is constantly calling us to his mercy. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. And in Revelations he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open unto me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. In conclusion, let me uh, share with you a story I read uh, recently. As uh, an 80-year-old widow, wrote this letter to her pastor. She was saying in the letter that her husband had died and there's something about it that is gnawing at her heart and she can't get it out. You see, when the husband was alive, he had done something that the wife considered to be terrible. No, no, he wasn't unfaithful in that regard. He wasn't talking about infidelity. She didn't go into details, but she said that he had told her a terrible lie that she could not forgive. And not only that, he compounded it by denying and denying and denying. And of course, eventually, 
he broke down and confessed and asked for forgiveness from his wife. The wife didn't want to hear about it. And he kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. A year passed, two years passed, three years passed. So the last thing he did was to arrange for one of these uh, romantic uh, candlelit dinner as a surprise in one of the expensive hotels. He had, neither, he had dinner, fine wine, and so on. And then he brought the subject again, please forgive me. She stormed out of there. I told you, don't bring this subject up again. This is the one thing I cannot forgive you. I still love you, but forgiveness, forget it. Two weeks after this incident, the wife received a call in the afternoon, summoned to a hospital, telling her that the husband is seriously sick. She hurried up there. By the time she got there, he was dead. It's been seven years now, and this woman doesn't know what to do with herself. So she's writing to her pastor for pastoral counseling. Yes, I know what you're listening for. Father Brian, Father Bob, uh, Deacon Bob, Deacon Amram. No, this is your homework. You are the one who's going to do the counseling to this lady. Take it home. Chew on it. Reflect on it. Get the lesson. Time is not on your side when it comes to do good. If you have an opportunity to do good, particularly the issue of forgiveness, can we put it off for tomorrow, for next week? I am sure, even though this woman didn't say so, I'm sure that she meant to forgive the husband someday. Maybe just to string him along a little bit. But now, what do you say to her as a pastoral counselor?